So we're looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and we'll be reading verses 1 to 11 today. It says, Working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance and afflictions, hardship, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known. As dying, and behold, we live, as punished, and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak to you as children. Widen your hearts also. Before Stephanie and I were married just over seven years ago, uh, we were told how fast your wedding day goes by. And I don't think I really believed anyone when they said that. But I remember we went to the ceremony, and the ceremony, you know, just seemed like a blink of an eye, just went so fast. And then we get to the reception, and, you know, we're just doing all these different things. We had to eat really fast, and uh, I don't think even Stephanie got to eat very much at all. And as soon as we're done eating, we just go around and start greeting people. And so we're going around, and it was the closest thing that I've ever felt to feeling like a celebrity, because everyone wanted pictures with us, and everybody's asking us all these questions, and everybody wants to tell us a story for like 10 or 15 minutes. And so we start off, and we're just kind of talking to people and listening to their stories, and some of these people I don't even know at all. It's like the first time I've ever met them, because they're like a friend of a friend or uh, somebody that Stephanie knew. And so we're just kind of going through and listening to their stories, and it, it took us maybe like an hour, hour and a half, something like that. I don't remember exactly. It took us an extended amount of time to get through like half of the room. And so we're just kind of hanging out, talking to everyone, and then the DJ comes up to us and said, uh, we got to get going, we got to get your first dance going. And it's like in like 15 minutes or half hour, we got to get started here. So we got half of the room to go, and it's taken us all this time to go through the other half. And so literally we have to go up to the, you know, to see everyone, we want to greet everyone, we want to make everybody feel appreciated, but we're going up and everyone wants to tell us a story and we're like, oh, thank you, thank you for coming, and they're, they're telling a story, thank you for coming, and we're like walking on to the next table because we had this sense of urgency suddenly we didn't have when we were talking to the first half of people. I think for too long the church of Jesus Christ has, law, has, has lacked urgency. And I don't even know if it's lacking urgency. Maybe it's just that we have misplaced urgency. We live in a very urgent culture. You think about even 20 years ago, uh, we all had dial-up internet. And you know how long it would take for us just to be able to check our emails, let alone we couldn't even load anything. You know, to load a web page, you could make dinner in the time it would take to load a web page. And it was just kind of par for the course. It was just kind of expected that it would take that long. But now, today, we have everything at, the, at our fingertips, and if it takes like five seconds for a web page to load, we're just like, what's, what's wrong with my phone? What, what, what's wrong with it? Why don't I get reception here? We live in an urgent culture. 
But I think our urgency is sometimes misplaced. We're urgent about the wrong things. Uh, there was research that was done in 1973 by psychologists named Darley and Batson. And uh, they did this study of uh, seminary students. And these seminary students were going to the other side of campus to preach on the Good Samaritan. They were preaching a message on the Good Samaritan. And some of these students were told, you're late, you have to get there as fast as possible. Other students were told, you know, just go to the other side, when you get there, you get there. Along the way, these researchers planted this actor who pretended like he was in need. You know, he was kind of hunched over and coughing and, and acting like he was really having a rough time. And what they found was 90% of the people who were told that they were late just walked right by this man who was clearly suffering and clearly in need. Uh, the researcher su suggested, uh, said this, Indeed, on several occasions, a seminary student going to give his talk on the parable of, a good, of the Good Samaritan literally stepped over the victim as he hurried away. I mean, no one could argue that these students lacked urgency. They were urgent to get to where they needed to go. They were urgent not to be late, but they weren't urgent about the right thing. They missed the point even of the passage they were about to preach upon. And I think that's what happens in our world today. We live in an, in an age of urgency, but that urgency is in the wrong direction. Uh, Dr. Leland Riken put it this way. He says, earlier in this century, someone claimed that we work at our play and play at our work. Today, the confusion has deepened. We worship our work, we work at our play, and we play in our worship. It's a case of misplaced urgency. We're urgent about the wrong things. Uh, writer uh, Alan Fadling tells a story about two servants. And the one servant would get up each morning and he wanted to get as much done as possible to please the master. And so he would get to work right away. He would just keep working from morning to night and he would get a lot done. But the second servant, he would get up and he wanted to know what the master actually wanted. So he would get up and he would spend an hour or two talking with the master saying, what would you like to see happen for the day? He wasn't able to get quite as much done, but at the end of the day, he got what his master wanted to get done. And I think oftentimes we're focused on things that are urgent or we think are urgent, but not the things that our Heavenly Father wants us to get done. Fadling writes this, genuine productivity is not about getting as much done for God as we can manage. It's doing the good work God actually has for us in, in a given day. Genuine productivity is learning that we're more than servants, that we're beloved sons and daughters, invited into the good kingdom work of our Heavenly Father. That being the case, how might God be inviting you to wait for his specific direction? Or is God inviting you to take a, spe a specific step now? I think the church in the United States need a recalibration of what is urgent, what we need to focus on. And I think as the church in general, we need to wake up to what's important in our lives. And I think the Apostle Paul gives us a demonstration. He shows us through his life and as well as his speech the things that are urgent for the believer in Christ. And I think as we look at, our at his example, I think we can learn the things that should be urgent in our lives. The first thing that he says is urgent is repentance. There's an urgency of repentance. Look at what he says in verse 2. He says, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now, first of all, Paul is talking to unbelievers, people who are still not following Christ, maybe because of an issue they had with Paul, maybe for some other reason they're not 
uh, following after Christ. They haven't repented of their sins. And Paul says, if, if ever there's a time to repent, the time is now. He says, you know that time that Isaiah prophesied uh, back you know, hundreds of years ago, the time of God's favor when God was going to hear your cry, that time is now. I believe the place that Satan wants us to stay in is he wants us to repent tomorrow, not today. Satan wants us to repent tomorrow. And Paul says repentance is urgent. You need to repent now. Today is the day of salvation. We don't know when Christ is going to return. We don't know when it's going to be too late. I remember when I was a teenager, um, uh, my parents went away on vacation, and I stayed home with my grandparents, and we just completely trashed the house. But the thing was, I knew when they were coming back. So about an hour before they came back, I'm literally going around and throwing out things and just tossing things, wiping the counters down, because I didn't want them to know how I kept the house while they were gone. The thing is, we don't know when Christ is going to return. He could return at any moment. We think that we have time to repent, but one, time, one moment it's going to be too late. Whether it's Christ returning or our own lives ending, one moment's going to be too late. Matthew 24, Jesus says this, But concerning that day and hour when Christ returns, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. No one, one will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming... He would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. There's an urgency in repentance. If we've never given our life to Christ, today is the day. We're not promised tomorrow. But for those of us who are believers in Christ, there's also an urgency of repentance because we don't know when our Lord and Master is going to return. And what will he find us doing when he returns? Do we want him to find us living for ourselves, not caring for those around us? Do we want him to find us watching pornography, engaging in an intimate relationship with someone who's not our spouse? Do we want him to find us living dishonestly, cheating on our taxes, not being honest with those around us? Do we want him to find us living at enmity with those around us, holding on to grudges, causing strife? Does he want to, do we want him to find us gossiping, talking about others behind their back? Do we want him to find us not praying or seeking God's face? Repentance is urgent. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to turn to Christ. Today is the day to, to, today to change because we don't know when he's going to return. And we want him to find us living obedient lives when he returns. So that he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. So there's an urgency of repentance. We can't wait till tomorrow. We need to repent today, whether we're unbelievers or whether we're believers. He also says there's an urgency to the mission of God. 
There's an urgency of missions. He demonstrates in his life, look at the incredible things that he suffered. He talks about afflictions. He talks about uh, sleeplessness, about hunger, beatings, imprisonments, all of these different things. He talks about uh, living lives of godliness. He talks about exhibiting integrity, genuine love, truthful speech, patience, kindness, being misunderstood, being treated as imposters. It's an incredible list of effort that goes forth in the mission of God. John Christendom put it this way, any of these things is intolerable, but taken together, think what kind of soul is needed to endure them. You think about all of these things, and the reason that Paul engaged in all of these things is because he believed in the mission of God. He believed in the importance of the mission. He believed it was valuable, and so he was willing to endure all of these aspects of suffering. He was willing to live a godly life. He was willing to be misunderstood. He was willing to use the weapons of righteousness because he believed that the mission was worth it. The question is, do we believe in the mission? Do we believe in the mission of God? Do we believe that it's worth it? There are billions of people, literally, who are headed for an eternity separated from God in hell. And too often we're focused on ourselves, on our own enjoyment, our own pursuits, rather than reaching out to those around us. You think about the uh, Titanic and that great tragedy that occurred many years ago. It might surprise you to know that there were actually two ships that were uh, in the vicinity of the Titanic. The first ship was called the California. The California was about 20 miles away, and uh, they didn't have their radio on, but they actually saw the flares that the Titanic was shooting off. And they just thought, why would somebody be shooting flares off in the middle of the ocean? Like, it couldn't be something sinking. They saw the lights go off in the Titanic, and they assumed, well, they just must be turning them off for the night. And the whole while, they never even turned on the radio. They were 20 miles away. They could have saved hundreds of lives. Then there's another ship. It's the Carpathia. And the Carpathia had their radio on, and they heard that distress signal from the Titanic. And as soon as they heard it, they were 58 miles away. They mustered all of their resources and went full speed, three and a half hours forward to the Titanic, and while it was still a tragedy, they were able to save about 700 people from disaster. Now, the one ship was in maintenance mode. They were just kind of cruising through the ocean, oblivious to what was happening. And the other was on mission, focused, willing to help those around them. And the question is, what kind of lives are we living? We know the lostness of our communities and our families, and yet too often we'd prefer to keep the status quo, to ignore the issue rather than to do something about it. But here's the thing. If Christ wanted us to just enjoy our lives and just live simple lives, just hanging out, enjoying ourselves, he could just take us to heaven. I mean, it would be better right there. I mean, it would be better that we'd been in heaven with him, but he left us here for a purpose for a mission to reach out to those around us. And so we have a calling from God that is valuable. Jesus gave us our marching orders in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, where he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go th therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And he gives us, uh, to teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And he gives us that promise, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Does the church have urgency to our mission? 
Consider the mission statement of a very famous university. Their mission statement was to be plainly instructed and consider well that the main end of your life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ. Founded several hundred years ago, this university employed exclusively Christian professors, emphasized character formation in its students above all else, and placed a strong emphasis on equipping ministers to share the good news. Every diploma read Christo et Ecclesia around Veritas, meaning truth for Christ and the church. You may have heard of this school. It's Harvard University. Eighty years after that, a group of New England pastors uh, got together and noticed that Harvard was starting to shift from its original mission. They wanted to create a place where Christ would be exalted, where students would be formed in the gospel. And so they shared their concerns with many, and they approached a wealthy businessman named Elihu Yale, and he financed their efforts in 1718. They called the college Yale University. Yale's motto was not just veritas, truth, like Harvard, but lux at veritas, light and truth. Now, of course, their mission changed. I mean, they started off trying to raise students to help see them see the gospel. And while they still have a strong academic foundation, they've lost that foundation in the gospel. Stephen Mueller, former president of John Hopkins University, bluntly stated, the bad news is the university has become godless. Larry Summers, the former president of Harvard, confessed, things divine have been central neither to my professional nor to my personal life. They lost their mission. Scholars call it mission drift, and I think we need to be careful that we don't do the same thing. Now, our church, I hope, was founded for one reason, to reach out to those around us, to be a light in this community in North Tonawanda, to share the love of Christ, the gospel, with those around us. That's why we exist. That's why we were founded. But over the course of time, if we're not careful, we can start to shift that mission. We can start to be focused on other things that maybe even are good things, but not ultimate things. Maybe we start to be focused only on fellowship. And that's kind of our goal. It's just to be, you know, to, to get together with one another and have a good time and enjoy ourselves. And of course, that's a good thing. That's not an ultimate thing. But if fellowship becomes our ultimate, then maybe we don't even want new people to come because then it kind of messes up the status quo. It kind of messes with our relationships. Or maybe the focus becomes on entertainment that I want to go to church and, and feel good about myself and, and hopefully be inspired by the Word of God and by music and go away, and we leave unchanged. It's all about us, all of our, our preferences, our, uh, about our desires. This cannot be. There's a world before us that's dying physically and spiritually. There are needs around us, physical needs, that we as the church can meet. There's spiritual needs that are all around us. We're living in a world of darkness. We cannot live without urgency for the mission. Paul believed that the mission was so important that there was no cost that was too great. There was no, nothing he would, wasn't going to be obedient in. And we see that he's focused and dedicated, and he's focused on the big acts of obedience as well as kind of the smaller acts of obedience. You know, he kind of talks about those two things. 
Now, when we think about the mission of God, there's the big acts of obedience. Uh, we think about kind of the things like he experienced, suffering, imprisonments. He would go church to church, preaching the gospel, being thrown out of cities, being thrown into prison. And, and there are some big things like that, like God might call you to go to another country to preach the gospel. Those are kind of the big acts of obedience. But he also says he engages in kind of the little acts of obedience, living a life of purity, knowledge, truthful speak, genuine acts of love. He says, and these are little acts of obedience that are part of the mission of God. And the thing is, we tend to focus on either one or two, either the big acts of obedience or the little acts of obedience. There are some who are being very obedient with kind of the smaller little acts of obedience. And when I say smaller, I'm not saying about their importance, but how sometimes we view them. We focus on, you know, loving our family well. We're great parents. We're great spouses. We're seeking to love those around us, seeking to live lives of purity and righteousness. We're doing all of those little things well. But the moment Christ calls us to do something uncomfortable, the moment Christ calls us to go across the street and talk to our neighbor about Christ or to serve someone in need, that's, that's too much. And we're fine being good, moral, obedient people, but we're not willing to do the things that would make us uncomfortable. We do the little acts of obedience, but when God says go, we say no. The cost is too great. Others of us, maybe we focus only on those big acts of obedience. And I've often seen this, especially with younger people. And they'll, they'll come and they'll be like, hey, I want to serve the Lord in ministry. I want to go uh, to the foreign mission field and preach the gospel. I'm willing to go wherever the Lord tells me to go. And then you look at their life and it's just completely messed up. They're not being obedient in their finances. They're not being obedient in their sexuality. They're not being obedient in their relationships. And yet they're like, yeah, I'll go anywhere the Lord wants me to go. But we need both. We need the little acts of obedience as well as the big acts of obedience. If we're not obedient in the big acts of obedience, when God says go, we'll make excuses why it's too, too much. It's too costly to go. On the other hand, if we're not obedient in the little acts of obedience and integrity, then God's not going to be able to use us for the mission. If we don't allow Christ to transform us, then we'll not be, we won't be able to, he won't be able to use us to transform others. Both are necessary, and Paul says he's leveraged everything that he is. Wherever God says go, he goes. Wherever God says obey, he obeys, and he uses all of the resources at his disposal for the mission because he believes it's that valuable. Do we believe it's that valuable? Is it worth it? Charles Peace, a notorious criminal uh, in uh, England years ago, was executed on February 25th, 1879, just before his execution, an Anglican minister half-heartedly read to him from the consolations of religion these words, Those who die without Christ experience hell, which is the pain of forever dying without the release which death itself can bring. Charles stopped the minister and said, Sir, if I believed what you and the church of God say that you believe... Even if England were covered with broken glass from coast to coast, I would walk over it, if need be, on hands and knees and think it worthwhile living just to save one soul from an eternal hell like that. 
Do we have that kind of urgency as the body of Christ to reach out to those around us to live the mission of God? Finally, Paul talks about urgency and reconciliation. Look at what he says in verses 12 to 13. He says, we've spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but, you're not, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children. Widen your hearts also. Paul is explaining to the Corinthians that his life is an open book before them. He's explained the reasons for his ministry and why he does what he does and how he's leveraged everything for the sake of the gospel. And yet there's still some in the community of, of Corinth that are at enmity with him. Still some that are estranged from him. Still some that will not make peace. And Paul says, let's just get along. We've got bigger problems. We just got to focus on the mission of God. We need to work together for the gospel. In a world where people are dying of hunger and multitudes are dying without Christ, there's no place for holding on to grudges. We need all of us working together. There was a study that was done, uh, it was reported in psychological science, and they discovered that the best arguers are those who don't point their fingers. According to the study, the person who says we the most during an argument suggests the best solutions. Researchers from the University of Pennsylvania and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill used statistical analysis to study 59 couples. Spouses who use second-person pronouns used tended for, toward negativity in interactions. Those making use of first-person plural pronouns, we provided positive solutions to problems. The study concluded we users may have a sense of shared interest that sparks compromise and other ideas pleasing to both partners. Usayers, on the contrary, tend to criticize, disagree, justify, and otherwise team with negativity. When we have a, co a conflict with another believer in Christ, it's not you versus me, it's us. We have an issue. Because your problem is going to affect me. My problem is going to affect you. And it's all going to affect the mission of God. And so we need to be reconciled to one another. We need to live at peace with one another if we're going to carry out the mission of God because God needs all of us working together. doesn't need individuals just kind of doing their own thing. He needs his whole church working together in unity towards the mission of God. So there's an urgency to reconciliation. There's also an urgency of reconciliation because, again, we don't know what the future holds. Imagine that person that you're in a conflict with. Imagine that tomorrow they meet Jesus. How might you live your life differently? Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's another family member. And maybe you're holding on to that grudge, and one day it's going to be too late. Maybe you're going to be gone. They're going to be gone. Christ is going to return. What if that day was tomorrow? How would you live your life differently? What would you try to do to fix that situation? That's why Paul says in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. We can't hold on to conflict. The mission is too important. We don't know what the future holds. And so Paul says there's an urgency to reconciliation. Be reconciled today. So the, Paul, the Apostle Paul lived with an incredible sense of urgency. He was urgent in his repentance. He repented the Lord, urged repentance to the Lord. He demonstrated urgency in mission. He preached the urgency of reconciliation. He lived a sense of urgency, resolving to know Christ and Christ alone to make him known and utilized everything at his disposal for that mission. 
Now we think about the Apostle Paul, and many people have said kind of the 20th century example of the Apostle Paul was a man by the name of Billy Graham. Uh, many of you know Billy Graham. Most of us know Billy Graham. Some maybe not. Uh, but Billy Graham was a famous evangelist who uh, did numbers of crusades, hundreds of crusades, preached to uh, millions of people, preached to more people in person than anybody in the history of the world. And the thing about Billy Graham that was interesting was his sense of intentionality and urgency about the gospel. He just wanted to get the message to, out to anyone that he encountered. Whether he was on the platform or whether he was just encountering somebody in everyday life, he wanted to get the mission out. Uh, the A. Larry Ross firm handled media and public relations for his organization for over 20 years. And Ross said this about Billy Graham. He said, one of the distinctive, distinctives of Mr. Graham's ministry has been his ability to make positive points for the gospel in any situation. He said, you can ask Billy Graham how he gets his suits dry cleaned on the road and he'll turn it into a gospel witness. He said, I cut my teeth in the corporate world before I worked with Mr. Graham, and I set up numerous media interviews. Almost always, before a TV interview, they do a microphone check, and they ask the interviewee to say something, anything, so they can adjust their audio settings. Often, a corporate executive for that check will count to 10, say their ABCs, or recite what they had for breakfast. He said, Mr. Graham would always quote John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. He said, when I asked Mr. Graham why he does that, he replied, because that way, if I'm not able to communicate the gospel clearly during that interview, at least the cameraman will have heard it. That's intentionality. That's urgency. Ladies and gentlemen, the time is short. Let's live with urgency today. Let's repent with urgency. Let's carry out the mission with urgency, knowing its value. And let's seek to live in peace with one another with urgency. Jesus is coming soon. What will he find us doing when we return? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your great love that urgently left heaven to come down to the earth, lived a sinless life, and died on the cross that you paid the ultimate price, your body was broken, your flesh ripped to shreds for us, for our lives, so that we could experience your salvation. Lord, you've done so much for us. You've paid the ultimate price. You've given us everything. You've given us hope. You've given us peace. And right now, Lord, we know you've given us a mission, a mission to love our families, to love our friends, to love our communities, to share your gospel with those around us. Lord, help us to live lives of repentance, to keep short accounts with you, that when we mess up, as we all do, that we would turn to you. Help us to be focused on your mission, to know that it is valuable. Help us to be living lives of urgency in regards to our relationships. Lord, help us not to have enmity, bitterness creep into our hearts, but help our hearts to be open to those around us. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all that you do for us. Help us to have just a shred of the dedication you've shown to us, Lord, in our lives. A shred of the urgency with which you've loved us, Lord. Lord, empower us to live urgent lives today through your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name I pray, amen.